Well, welcome back to Scholars and Sense. It's the podcast that takes a deeper dive into the issues of the day. Thoughtful conversation that we hope rises above the noise and talking points and gets to the heart of the matter. I'm Bill Bennett, alongside my co-hosts, Conrad Black and Victor Davis Hanson. Let me start off. Uh, kind of surprise news this morning. Unemployment has jumped. How can unemployment jump in this great economy? Any thoughts on that? That is a puzzle. I, I mean, I, are there any um, labor experts? Who, I mean, presumably the Democratic Party will trot out all sorts of people saying it's uh, university age people who've given up on being students for this year and or put themselves in the labor market or something. But I mean, it, it, it's counterintuitive, countercyclical, and I would have thought worrisome for for the government. But uh, but am I missing something? First thing in the news this morning was uh, all these people who are not going back to work uh, because of government benefits. So uh, are you employed? No, I'm not. Are you collecting a check? Yes, I am. So apparently that's accounts for a big part of that increase. Uh, and uh, that's that's not, obviously not a good thing, Victor. Yeah, I, I think we talked about it in the earlier broadcast that we thought it was coming. Huh? And the only mistaken assumption was that we thought it would come later than sooner. But I think what you're seeing is a perfect storm. On the one hand, you are giving all of these stimulus and support for people who have been nurtured by them for over a year in quarantine and they're not there. Some of them plead that they're scared of the, uh, the virus still. Maybe that's it. Maybe they're not acculturated getting back to work or maybe they feel there's no economic need to given these generous support. And so on the one hand, you're curbing uh, available labor. Then you at the same time, you have this huge pent up demand and a lot of funny money. And we're up to 120% GDP in our national debt now. And so there's a lot of people want to buy cars. They, they want to travel and we're short labor. And then we're sending a further anti-productive message to employers. We're saying to them, whether you like it or not, gas has gone up a dollar. Your natural gas bill is going up. Your power bill is going up. We're going to tax your estates. We're going to tax your corporate tax rate. It's going to go up. Your personal tax rate is going to go up. We're not going to let you frack on uh, federal lands anymore. So the message is don't produce. You've got too much money. At the same time, maybe you don't need to go to work, And but you, do, you should spend. So I think we're going to see stagflation uh, increase where you have anemic production, anemic labor participation, and pretty strong inflation. And there, yeah. there, is a, there is a problem where you're trying to suck and blow at the same time. They're trying to say everything will be fine. We'll take care of everything. Uh, and they're, they're also still trying to frighten the living Jehovah out of the entire population over a virus that the country has substantially recovered from. So this collision, it's like, and I was thinking Bob Gates, you remember, said famously of uh, Joe Biden, every, everything he did in foreign policy was wrong. You know, if he could make a mistake, he did. Uh, every decision was wrong. It looks as the same thing may be happening domestically. I mean, this is just the wrong way to stop this train, this engine, which was moving forward so, so well um, at the end of the Trump administration. And they had it set up with their propaganda machine, with their control of the media, to say we solved, we solved the pandemic. But in, but in, instead, they're they're saying we will solve it. Have no fear of that. You can have a hot dog with your neighbor on the Fourth of July. But in the meantime, keep double mask, keep 
socially distanced. And they put on that ridiculous charade at the Congress for his State of the Union message, whereas I commented in one of my pieces, he's invoking Roosevelt, who's best known for we have nothing to fear but fear itself and was nothing if not an indomitable personality, whatever anyone thought of his policies. And they look like a bunch of idiots and cowards standing there in their masks when they've all been double vaccinated and they're in no danger. You can't incite fear and confidence at the same time. He's the greatest proponent of not getting a vaccination that we have, unfortunately. We were driving down the 99, the main north-south artery in California the other day, and I said to my wife, let's count how many out of every 10 cars a person in a sealed car has a mask on in a state that has one of the highest now vaccination rates in the country. And we had, I think, out of 40 million people, 62 people died of COVID. And we know a lot of them had, all of them had comorbidities. And we found four. Four out of every 10 cars, the person was driving with a mask on. And so where did that alone come from? Yeah. So, I mean, alone in the car and we were laughing. We said, apparently somebody walking along the side of the road or somebody with his window down has a virus that goes in at 70 miles an hour into their air conditioning system. But that's the kind of lunacy that he's inculcated. And it's counterproductive to getting everybody vaccinated up to, you know, 60 percent or 70 percent. It's not going to end well, not this uh, pathetic woke revolution, not this foreign policy that's driving Russia and China together uh, and destroying the calm in the Middle East, and especially not this uh, economic formula. The only thing I have a question of Bill and Conrad is, so we have, this is a top-down revolution. This is not a prairie fire populist pitchfork and peasants. This is the Coke CEO, this is Delta CEO, this is Target, 17, 18 yeah. million a year. This is Mark Zuckerberg. This is Oprah shouting from her $90 million mansion to LeBron in his $40 million mansion. <laughs> and what is the ideology behind this? Is it they feel they want a virtue signal because they feel guilty? Or are they sort of the Russian aristocrats that think that if they cut a deal with Lenin, he'll, they'll be spared? Or do they really believe this stuff because their lives... How can Mark Zuckerberg, let me just finish by saying, how can he be for all this while he's building a 57,000 square foot home in his Hawaiian estate as we speak? It doesn't, what, what's, what's the ideology? Well, in his own case, I don't know him and I haven't studied him at all, but I, he strikes me as that type that has, has become extremely wealthy at a very young age and thinks that, that he is a genius and he's done it because he's a genius and he doesn't really have the capitalist ethos. Uh, I mean, traditionally, uh, and when I started my career, such and modest as it was or has been, uh, you understood that it was going to take a while to make a lot of money if that's what you wanted to do. And nobody had a lot of money until they were at least in their 40s, unless they inherited it. Uh, and, and so you develop that notion. You really had to work hard and be consistently ingenious. And he, he represents a sort of, if you're really brilliant, you can get rich quick, and then you can preach to everybody else on, on what they should do, not for any reason other than that you're such a genius, you know what they should do. Uh, but, but that doesn't explain these uh, uh, you know, this gang of Jamie Diamonds and, and this ludicrous man of Delta Airlines, uh, and uh, I, I don't, I don't know what they're thinking. I, my guess is they want to be trendy and they're embarrassed capitalists, and some of them are from modest backgrounds and want to send a message that they've never forgotten that, but they haven't thought it through. I mean, and they they assume that the consequences of their own ideology will either not apply to themselves or they'll be able with their influence and wealth to navigate around them, i.e. 
when it's not safe downtown, they'll have security guards. When the schools go to hell, which they are, they'll have prep schools. When the global warming police come after them, it's an exemption for a private. And, and when guess. the mobs surge through the streets to burn down the houses of the people responsible, they will be spared because they've been tribunes of the people. I, I, I that's that. Yeah. Yes, I think there's a good dose of guilt, uh, whether they've succeeded at a young age or an older age, um, about their success when they know their own limitations. But I also think... Guilt or megalomania, one or the other. Okay, but I also think there's... Um, I think this is learned behavior, you know, from each other and from the institutions. Um, there's also, you know, conservatives look around and say, how did we lose the foundations, the corporations, the universities, the media, Hollywood? Well, you know, uh, the, the left was smart enough to focus on that. And we were thinking about banking and regulation and taxes, all important things for a party to talk, talk about. But um, the culture, the culture, the culture. Um, and there's a funny way in which when people become successful, isn't it? They, they go in opposition. Uh, Victor will tell me if I'm translating correctly. But there was an essay I remember by George Steiner in which he said, never forget the power of odi profanum vulgus. I hate the vulgar crowd, right? Is that pretty close, Victor? Pretty close. Uh, You know, and if they like it, we don't. If they like Disneyland, we don't. If they like Trump, we don't. Uh, If they they love America and the flag, we don't. Uh, A mark of status and sophistication, I think. Some of these guys want to be popular and and, and think it might get them somewhere. You know, you can always attract people like that to a... A public role. Maybe half of these guys are running for Secretary of Commerce or something. I don't know. I mean, you know, not to harp on Roosevelt too much, but he always referred to groups of people that didn't exist. He said the munitions makers, the malefactors of great wealth, yeah. the economic yeah. royals. It's all bunk. They didn't exist. If he'd ever said, if he'd ever said the Morgans and the Rockefellers and Henry Ford will pay for this his followers would have gone and burned their houses down. But he never said yeah. anything like that. Now, they're, they're sort of doing the inverse here, where they're saying, look, I, Jamie Dimon is up there with the people, and maybe he wants to be, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, he, he was my banker once upon a time. That was a long time ago. Maybe he wants to be Secretary of the Treasury or something. I think they're very cynical people. They, they remind me of the late-stage Russian nomenclatura that had their Black Sea Dakas and all that. In other words, they never, they thought there was nothing incongruent with standing out on the May Day parade and looking at the, the, the glories of communism come by and with missiles and all that stuff. And then, you know, getting on a plane and going to the Black Sea and enjoying yourself in a way that nobody else uh, could even buy meat. And so I, I don't think they have a, one thing that, that I think is strange about them, they have an absolute hatred and contempt for the 65 percent of americans who don't have a bachelor's degree and yet yeah, we're, we're all you know we're all we all believe in the enlightenment and the promise of education but since education has been so warped let's face it the people who have their finger in the dike right now are that 65 percent of the muscular classes that are pragmatic and have to get up and deal with reality every day and it's the 30 and they do and they do include some of these rich guys so, i mean gates never graduated did he did zuckerberg no no, no. Yeah. no neither one of them but they did, I think, complete two or three years at Harvard. Yeah, they got they got into. I mean, it. they weren't like Cher that was a dropout in high school at sixteen. But Cher, yeah, yeah but but I actually, advised Gates. Did you know that I was a proctor? 
uh, not his proctor. I was his proctor's proctor. So he was my grand proctee, and my the, the kid who was my proctee, I'm using this correctly, asked me to talk to Gates when Gates was considering leaving. And I talked to him twice to no avail, and I said, look, whatever you're doing, <clears throat> you're going to be more valuable. It's going to be worth more to you to have the Harvard degree. He didn't listen, so I remember I said to my friend, let him go. We'll never hear from him again. So more good advice from, from Bill Bennett here. And anyway, he, some, he somehow made it. But uh, you know what you're what you're talking about is this. You know why why isn't there isn't that the phrase cognitive? Why isn't there cognitive dissonance? You know what why 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 can people sit there straight faced while you know they go to a lecture at their kid's university for which they're paying seventy thousand a year and hear everything that they care about debased and degraded and insulted and not pull their tuition? Uh, what is that? I, I mean, I think status is a big deal. Getting that degree from even you know, Middlebury matters to people. And so they'll put up with it until a guy like Gutman, you know, this Andrew Gutman, this guy, father at Brearley School in New York, says the hell with it. Uh, I'm pulling my daughter because, you know, we're not going to swallow this this crud. Do you guys think there is a pitchfork revolution brewing against this stuff? One seems to see some of this about critical race theory and about, you know, we don't want our kids taught, you know, to hate each other. Uh, is there some kind of revolution of the 65% uh, going on, Victor? When I was nine years old, there was uh, something called, I don't know if you remember it, it was called the June bug scare. And yeah. down in a factory somewhere in Tennessee, some people got sick of a mysterious illness. I think it was psychosomatic hysteria. And so they brought in the, the CDs. Everybody looked and they said, you know what? They think they've been bitten by June bugs. June bugs are harmless. Well, yeah. that just spread overall. So I can remember as a kid in California uh, being told by all our neighbors, you got to get hammers and go out in your patio and kill every damn June bug there is because they're deadly. And we went through that all summer. My parents were very educated people. And they said, I don't know what's true, but that's what this thing is. It's a mass hysteria. And it's like the emperor that has no clothes. It takes a few people to say it's naked or the June bugs will not hurt you. And then it dissipates because there's no sustenance to it. But we haven't had enough people yet to say, I'm not going to do that. I, I was listening. Sometimes I listen to MSNBC just to see what they're saying. And sure. Sure. The other night, every guest said, we're in a wave of white violence against Asian Americans. So it took about two seconds, even on the staggered prejudicial Google order of search results to find out that in San Francisco and New York, the vast majority, both numerically and proportionally, are committed by young African-American males. And then there was two graphic videos just this week from New York of, yes. of, of that happening. And yet here was everybody saying that, and they were very careful. They didn't say that whites were actually doing them, but that whites created the conditions that are ultimately responsible for others doing them. And then right after that happened, suddenly Ashley Babbitt, story came back up and her family is suing $10 million and they're asking for discovery. And we're starting to learn that the government really doesn't want to talk about uh, anything about how she was killed. And we're starting to see these details. There were armed people in riot gear that could have confronted her. She probably committed a felony by breaking in the Capitol through a window that was already open, but she was shot in the shoulder and the neck killed. And according to our protocol, anytime a officer shoots somebody who's unarmed, then we have a national discussion about a national conversation. We get the person, the officer's name, age, 
But none of that happened. And yet it's, it's, you talk about cognitive dissonance. We're supposed to say, okay, that's, that's the reality. Okay, that's the reality with hate crimes. Okay, the Washington Capitol's got to be shut down because there's something called QAnon or whatever it is. It's an existential threat, even though we had 90 days where 37 people were killed, $2 billion of damage last summer, but that's okay. And you're asking too many, you're asking the public to accept too many lies and they're like straws on a camel's back. And I think- yeah, gonna- Could I add to that? I, I think you're, we're backing into the collapse like a souffle of Trump eight. When the Democratic Party has been sustained by this hot air balloon of Trump eight for five years, and we all know they've accused him of everything, treason and all the rest of it. And uh, and they really thought they could hang around his neck like a toilet seat, this idea. And, and, and Biden referred to it in a speech to the Congress when he said we were facing an abyss of insurrection and autocracy, i.e. Trump. He didn't mention him, but Trump was trying to promote a violent overthrow of the government and and a, a revolutionary dictatorship presided over by himself. Uh, it was complete nonsense, just an absolute fairy tale, unlike anything that has had any currency in, in my time in the United States. Uh, I mean, more fantastic than the McCarthyite schemes of uh, communist insurrection and so forth. And and uh, it is finally slowly dawning on them. And, and, and oddly enough, the inarticulation of the attorney general, which came as a surprise to me, uh, is, is indicative of the kind of a barometer of, of how this is, is failing as an idea. Uh, at the outset, he said that the domestic terrorists were the greatest problem and, and uh, the investigation of what went on in January 6th in Washington would be uh, the most complicated of all investigations. It is now clear, and, and indeed this rather underwhelming director of the FBI, Ray, said it in his testimony there some weeks ago, that there's not a shred of evidence connecting the Trump campaign or the Trump administration to any of what went on on the on, on, January 6th, other than this large group gathered to hear the president. But they had no idea that was going to happen. They certainly didn't wish it would happen. And and so they just have to go silent. And I think what's what's happening is they just have no answer and they see the souffle falling. And and, uh, one of these days, and maybe it's already started, they're going to get extremely sweaty of palm and shaky at the knee that they have to govern. They're going to be judged in the record. They can't win on a smear job any longer. And, and uh, you know, that's when, I don't know, you're in the plane piloting the plane and you discover there's no gasoline in, in, the, in, the, in the tanks I, I, or no jet fuel or whatever it is. I, I mean, I, I think it's just going to fall dramatically. What does it mean to fall? I've heard again, Republicans, I don't want to be too hard on them, but saying, OK, we're all set for 2022. We're all set. Maybe they'll take back the House. That will be a political victory. What about the cultural victory? What about, you know, the long-term victory? Uh, all right, so you get you get the House back in 22 and you're able to block stymie, you know, most of what he wants to do then. But when when do we start thinking straighter? Bill, may I put it to you that it's a brilliant question. I think the first hint of an answer was Tim Scott, Senator Scott's reply to yeah, Biden. Great, yeah. And, and yeah. the feeble yeah. response of the Democrats. They had no reply. All I could do was call him Uncle Tim and then Oreo. And then, and then the, you know, the social media platforms had to take that down. But that was a very important response by the Democrats, drawing out the poison, drawing out the poison on the Internet, showing who these people are, what they were uh, not in the least embarrassed to call him time after time after time. Jen Psaki said uh, yesterday that uh, Joe Biden simply should didn't say he won't 
or he hasn't, which would be true, but she said he should not take questions. And he's at the point now where he cannot finish a coherent teleprompted speech. He can't answer questions. And so he's not going to be defending all of the policies that he's advancing from the Green New Deal to open borders to the hardcore identity politics. They don't have 50 or the voter. They don't have 51 percent. And all of this ambitious, let's change the process so we can get the policies in perpetuity. I don't think they're going to get through because I think that Joe Manchin and uh, Senator Sima have their finger up in the wind and they're saying, you know what, this thing is very fluid and volatile. I don't want to be the one that was responsible for putting Puerto Rico and Washington in the states. I don't want to get rid of the Electoral College. I don't want to pack the court. I don't want to have a national uh, unconstitutional voter law. And I will be blamed for it if I get rid of the filibuster. So if they stop that, then you're and you don't have public support for it. What do you have if you're Joe Biden to to sustain these executive orders? And all you have is public opinion and the economy. And we already know that Republicans are undercounted, and he's about fifty three or fifty four. And if the economy is not is not strong, it's going to be it can change very quickly. And I George Bush found that with the Iraq War. He when the statue fell in April of 2003, he had 90%. And a year and a half later, he was down to about 43%. And he left office with 25. And so uh, if people feel that they were... And he was a much more competent man than Biden. Oh, not even not even close. He was much more competent, much more articulate than Biden was as well. And they made fun of his... Well, you know, Victor, I hear, I mean, you guys would have much better connections to members of the Congress than I do. But... um, I, I do have some, I do talk to some people who do talk to a lot of congressmen and senators. And as I understand it, uh, they don't have the votes for any of this stuff, even in their own caucus in the House of Representatives. These congressmen, you know, talk to the districts all the time. And what they're hearing is don't touch this stuff. There's no support for it. or I mean, no majority support for it. Yeah, I hear that. I talked to a member of the House yesterday. I, I'm going to see him tonight. And he said the same thing that these, uh, I don't, call them conservative Democrats, they don't exist anymore. But people in districts that were plus Trump or something, they either are are looking to have a different career, maybe in the Biden administration or do something else. They don't want to run for re-election, seven or eight of them. And then more importantly, they don't want to run on this. I am one of those who thinks that there is a very substantial possibility that, well, undoubtedly Biden won the popular vote. Uh, Only 42,000 votes, if they were tactically exactly placed would have flipped the election in georgia pennsylvania and wisconsin combined and given the funny business that went on supposedly to facilitate voting in pandemic conditions um and and none of this was ever addressed by the judiciary of all the cases taken by the trump campaign or the attorney general texas i believe there are 28 of them in total they, they were all not heard for procedural reasons none of them was adjudicated so the judiciary from the supremes down took the position this was too hot a potato. They were not going to run any risk of flipping the election. So when, when a country has a potentially, uh, at least partly, faked election result and the judicial co-equal branch of the government simply abdicates, you are going to get a lot of disorder. And I think the fact that it's been as quiet as it has, though it hasn't been very quiet, is a testament to the fundamental stability of the regime. But it 
but it also indicates just how fragile this attempt at a massive, absolute upheaval in in the in the democratic small d democratic method of government in the country and the the whole uh, ideological cast of of its uh, laws to monitor elections, regulate and administer elections, and the flows of money around within society, all of that has, has, has not and never had any real foundation under it. And eventually, you pay for that. Can we come back to Tim Scott for just a second? I want to ask my question yeah. another way. We talk about Congress. If, if the Republicans take the Congress for reasons that have been cited in lots of places, and, and you know, you guys were just talking about, Victor was just talking about a fellow he's going to see tonight, and the tentativeness of a lot of these, what, moderates, if not maybe not moderates, whatever they are, Democrats, but and the margin is so close. But if you take if you take the House back, Republicans, but the country still believes that, you know, it's the country is systematically racist uh, and, and other things. What have we won? I mean, it's a, it's a short-term thing, and I'm all for blocking and stymieing. But did the – the reason I want to come back to Tim Scott, did the Tim Scott response and the public response to Tim Scott encourage you about what Madison calls the final repository, the virtue of the people, that they get it, that there is a 65% out there that gets it uh, and wants it right and, and, and is getting it right? I, I think it does because uh... – Anytime you see a, a group that is predictably, supposedly written off as predictable politically, and you have members of that group who are dissidents, there's so much pressure on them that by needs, they are more analytical and they have to be more articulate. And it's the same thing with Jewish conservatives in the United States and Europe. When you meet a Jewish conservative, they are so far <laughs> more sophisticated in their argumentation, not just in liberal Jews that don't like Israel, but in anybody. And the same thing is true of black conservatives. Uh, they tend to be more articulate, more analytical than white conservatives because they're on, you know, I'm talking specifically about somebody like Tom Sowell or Shelby Steele and my colleagues. And so what happens is if the Republican Party, I think, has taken them for granted and they've said to them, we're going to use you as a special shock force to stop people in the minority communities where they should have said, because you've been under so much assault and these these ideas were organic within you, we're going to understand and appreciate the fact that you probably can do a better job than we can and put them into positions of authority and responsibility. And when that happens, this whole racial facade will start to shrink. And I think it already is here in California with the Mexican-American vote, because when you start seeing middle-class Mexican-American people very carefully saying, I don't want to pay these tax, I don't like the, the power bills, I do not like the gender initiative, I do not, and and they were the people, they and the Asian American community are really the drivers behind the, the Newsom recall. And so I, I'm very confident. One th I just want to add one thing, though, that I think it's really an important development. And I'm really worried about this. And that is the traditional bastions of support for our intelligence agencies, our investigatory, FBI, the CIA, military were conservatives. In the last two months, I think that's just completely eroded. When the FBI did this to Giuliani, it's almost they were a shock force. When they went into this home in Washington, this couple and roused them out of bed and falsely accused them of being at the January 6th. When we had this CIA infomercial the other day about being woke and all of this crap about you could be a progressive CIA agent. And then when you see these retired military 
employing terms of Trump, he's Mussolini, he's Nazi, he's responsible for Auschwitz. Then they came out during the the June 6th and 7th attacks on the Capitol grounds, and they said, you know, if you dare call in federal troops, you're a tyrant. Admiral McRaven said uh, Trump should leave sooner or later, I guess before an election. And then they didn't say anything about the militarization of Washington. Don't you think that that says something that if you ask a conservative today, what do you think of our most distinguished officers, General Miley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs? What do you think of all these great um, retired generals and admirals? I think they're going to say, you know what? They get woke to get promoted. They get on corporate boards. I'm not going to really defend them and that agenda of, of not being meritocratic anymore. And what do you think of the CIA? Uh, I'm, I just don't want to comment. CIA reminds me of the intelligence age. Too much of John Brennan, too much uh, of James Clapper and the def- director of national intelligence. How about the FBI? Well, I got sick of Comey 245 times. He said he couldn't remember under oath. I just think that, that support has evaporated for those traditional bastions that needed it. Yeah, but but they, it's evaporated deservedly. To me, the most shocking of all of them was uh, uh, Esper and, and Milley or Miley after they walk over to the Church of the Presidents, just publicly denouncing the commander-in-chief. And, uh, I mean, I, it, it, Miley's conduct was a good deal more disloyal than General MacArthur's. And General MacArthur was actually strategically correct, and he was a great general. I mean, who the hell is Miley? He's a military bureaucrat, as far as I can see. And and uh, I think I agree with you, Victor. But I think it it is shocking, and I think the public's already there. Uh, but I, I go back to 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 Senator Scott. The the abs- your point, the point both of you made, it was illustrated perfectly by the failure of the Democrats to respond to him and and their friends in the media. I mean, Don Lemon tried. I mean, I don't follow them that much, but like you, I watch them sometimes just hear what they're saying, and they had no answer to this man. And the country saw that. And and I think I think it was a very watershed moment. There really is no answer. One of the things I picked up in this uh, critical race theory uh, a book uh, by this Kindy guy is, you know, uh, the myth of colorblindness. You know, one of the reasons King is totally missing from this entire, you know, curriculum is uh, he represents everything that's wrong with their theory. Um you know, and, 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 and there was Scott, you know, doing, doing a very good impersonation of Martin Luther King, right? And this they hated because uh, he is no longer King and, you know, now Scott is no longer a, a person to look to. And that's why they don't have an answer. Because it's clear that is what the Constitution's about. It's clear what the Declaration's about. Content of your, of, of your character, not the color of your skin. That was the promise of the original Constitution. And that is the promise explicit in the Declaration. So they have no answer. And once that gets out, I'm thinking of something Havel, Vaclav Havel said. You know, we all knew it was a lie. You know, the signs in the stores everywhere. We all knew it was a lie. But once the truth got out, it was very hard to to, to to catch it and put it back in its box. That's at least my theory. Yeah, maybe too right. maybe too hopeful. Maybe too hopeful. I don't think so because on the woke thing, you can see they're already backing up. I mean, I saw the vice president say on television about ten days ago that yes. in effect she she defined systemic racism as the fact that it's a society that has some racists in it. Well, I don't think anyone would dispute that. I just said there are not very many of them, at least as a percentage, but there would be some. 
but but they're they're trying to back up now. But when asked the question by Stephanopoulos, is this a, uh, a, a is, is America a racist country? She said no. Right? She said no. That yeah. was the first answer. Yeah. They're starting to back away from the edge of the abyss. She has to say that because I've seen. I mean, I didn't know him, but I passed by him. Her her father was a distinguished professor on the Stanford campus, PhD. Her mother was a distinguished re- research PhD. She found her career advancement within the Willie Brown privilege uh, machine that ran San Francisco. So she's been a, a child of privilege. Has a lot of people. One of the things that is strange is just we've replaced class with race. So a lot of people who are driving this, to be frank, are white wealthy liberals. And yet when you examine how they live, their children are in prep schools, they're not in public schools, their uh, gated communities are mostly white, maybe white and Asian, and the people that they associate with and socialize with are the, of the same group. But I don't, that strange recompense for all of that, whether it's guilt or whether it's medieval penance, I don't know. But they are driving this, and you want to, you, you say to them, you've taken class, which was a fluid idea in Marx and others, it never worked here, Marxism, because American upward mobility, there was never a stagnant group of Okies that were always going to be Okies who came to California, like the Jodes. They're very, and three generations are Italians that came from Sicily. But race, the left said, now, wait a minute, Gramsci and all that. Race is a better thing because it doesn't have to do anything with class. So you can be Le- LeBron James and you can live in a $45 million mansion and you can make a be worth a billion, but you can always for the rest of your life be oppressed. Everybody can be oppressed no matter what their station in life. And that's a much better argument for permanent victimhood and need of redress. So now we're in this absurdity of all these wealthy people, Asian, black, brown, white, who are acting as if they're victims and they want nothing to do with the middle class. Black, the, the wealthy black uh, elite do not want to live among the lower black middle class or even the poor. I mean, the black inequality, about 10% of African-Americans have about 80% of the black American wealth. It's more unequal even in the white, not quite as much as the Asian community. But nobody wants to talk about that. And so that that's a real missing question, that this is really an elite revolution by a bunch of people talking to each other and trying to outdo and outbid each other in search of victimhood in a country that has... Too many victims and not enough victimizers to go around. Do you think, uh, a different topic but related, uh, do you think um, that uh, Biden uh, and crowd, but Biden and his comments is uh, is anti-Southern? I do. Uh, It seems to me there's a particular um, bile and and, uh, insult uh, that he reserves for Southerners. Uh, Abbott is uh, Neanderthal, says to Georgia, smarten up. Uh, this this occurs a lot. Uh, and I, I think now, and I've thought for some years, that if this country is saved, it'll be saved by the South, that that's our ballast, uh, common sense, good sense, Midwest and South. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he just seems to reserve a special place in his insult uh, list uh, for uh, for Southerners. Uh, and, and wasn't that part of the immediate lemming reaction to the Georgia thing. Well, if it's coming out of Georgia, despite the fact that it put in two extremely liberal senators, uh, well, it was, it was a Southern, it was a Southern state. Well, remember the earlier Biden before Biden point 3.0, whatever he is, he was a great 
encomiast of James O. Eastland and Robert Byrd. So he had no problem with Southern segregationists. He seems to have a lot of problems with white progressive, or excuse, I should say white uh, modern people from the South that aren't segregation. But when they were segregationists, he had no problem. But I it think wasn't it more, just a, a matter of they, they ran the Congress. They, they ran the Congress. But he went out of his way, though, to say things that to ingratiate himself that others didn't. I would say, though, that I don't know if it's that invective is is limited to Southerners. Remember what he said? He said to one African-American DJ, you ain't black. And to another, hey, junkie, what if I said you were a cokehead? And then he said to a stranger on at a town hall, hey, fat, you want to do push-ups? He said to another young woman who was a student, you're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. He, he, this idea that Joe Biden is a nice guy was never true in the past, never true in the present, and will never be true in the future. Sell it he's to all, Bob Burke. He's always been a mean SOB, and he says things, whether his corn pop stories or bragging about getting the Ukrainian person. It's always he-man Joe Biden, who's a tough guy from Scranton, who when he was a little kid slammed the guy's face into the counter because he insulted his sister, or he's going to take Donald Trump behind the gym and beat him up. It's always this insecure guy from Scranton who, this braggadocio, it's mean-spirited, and there is no such thing as Uncle Joe. There never was. It was a complete myth that was fabricated mostly uh, in, as the antithesis of Donald Trump. And by the way, Donald Trump was never as cruel. He was maybe as cruel, but he was never as ad hominem as cruel, I think, as Biden has been. I think he's a lot of wit here, too. The point I wanted to raise was this vote uh, coming up on Congresswoman Cheney's status, I think, is an absolute dividing point for the Republicans because she is standing absolutely on the line that it was a completely fair election and that and that Trump incited insurrection and was impeachable and should have been removed even after he left the office. And uh, the, the Republicans simply cannot sign on to that. They're legitimate and in my opinion, historically provable point is that it was a questionable election result and he did not incite an insurrection and had no intention of doing so and no desire for one. And, and that is, is, is merely makes her an agent of the democratic uh, defamation of President Trump. And they have to throw her out of that position. And I think they will. But, but it is it, it, everyone who's saying it's a turning point, including her. Are right, but it's not quite the turning point she thinks it is, and and uh, you know there's been this to me shocking locking of arms even on Fox News to say that Trump's complaints about the election are unfounded and have been proved to be unfounded. They haven't been adjudicated, and it is a questionable result. And the Republican Party to maintain its integrity, even even the the never Trump part of it, have to stick with the ex president's line. It was a questionable result. The judiciary took a bunk on the whole thing, and there certainly was absolutely no administration or, or Republican National Committee input into an, any idea of an insurrection. And and I'm she's just put herself outside the law. What does yeah. take a bunk mean? Uh, it's British expression for, for run away from something. Okay, all right. I, I, I agree with you. Um, I agree with you about the election, first of all, but... I agree with you about Cheney, but I say so with some regret because I've known Liz Cheney a long time, like her, think she's strong and brave and think she made a terrible mistake here, a terrible mistake from which she cannot step back. Uh, I checked the record. She voted with Trump, uh, you know, a zillion percent of the time, 75, 80, 85 percent of the time. 
uh, better than you know some of the Republicans who are who are condemning her. But yeah, that can't stand, and um, and and I agree, it's it's too bad. She's very bright, and I would have liked to seen that intelligence and in, in leadership in the in the House Republican House. I I, I agree with that. I've I've had dinner with her. I liked her a great deal. I think, and the irony is that for all her criticisms of Trump, as you said. She's been on at least on her voting record, pretty loyal Trump supporters. So the question is, Qui Bono, who's the who's the beneficiary of all this? She's made her point so many times in the past that she has a disagreement with Donald Trump and she disagrees with him on foreign. But then there wouldn't and then basically McCarthy said, We understand that, let's not remove her. But then why go to this next level and keep like a woodpecker drilling? And you have to ask yourself, is it because as Wyoming's only representative. She feels that she has a, a rump group of 20 or 30 percent of Republicans. And that's not enough, of course, but she's going to get the other Democrats. There are some Democrats and squeak out a coalition to get reelected. Or is it she thinks she has no chance at all and she wants to be a national figure in some kind of re- reclamation of the Republican Party or she wants a job? Or I don't know what it is, but it seems to me that it's it's suicidal politically and and there's a other point here I think is really important because it came up with some of my colleagues at National Review and that when I had a discussion with them. If you're a conservative and you did not like Donald Trump's comportment or even some of his policy, then you could criticize him. But if you're a conservative, that criticism would be weighed of your criticism also of the left. But the fatal problem with the never Trumpers, that obsession became that they announced that they were abandoning the national ideological fight and they were self-appointed gatekeepers of proper speech and conduct of Republicans. And they never applied that level of venom uh, to the other side. And that's her problem. If she had just said to herself, I've been a lot, I'm a family of conservatives. I am a conservative. And each time that I point out a constructive criticism of Donald Trump, I'm going to say whatever he did that I disagreed with in comparison to what this socialist agenda is that we're now faced with. It was, but she never applies the same audit or censor of the other side. That's what all the never Trumpers, they made a career of, of self-appointed censors of their own people and they never were commiserate. And that's what and they, they were. They're basically uh, useful idiots for the Democrats. Uh, well, that's a, that's a, that's a good question because it's a two way manipulation because after all, we can say that the Lincoln Project were useful idiots, and they were, but they also scammed $100 million from the stupid leftist who gave them the money on, on dreams that they were going to be very important. So I don't quite write them off. I think they're very sophisticated grifters, and they get manipulated, but they, they get rich in the process. No, I know a lot of them. Yeah, I know a lot of them. I cleaned out my Rolodex on a lot of them. One thing that's driving me crazy, and I, I suggest we bring this to a – to a close, unless somebody else has something, is can somebody, uh, two things on Kamala Harris. First, uh, Victor, you reported you and your wife seeing four out of ten people in cars wearing masks. How about, did you see the picture of Mr. and Mrs. Kamala Harris, I can't remember his name, kissing with the masks on? For God's sakes, is this what we've come to? Is this what life is? Really? Okay. There, you, There's what we call, usually mistakenly in philosophy, they say ad, ad absurdum. This is ad finem, the final point, the, you know, the end point. But this one, this task of hers, as if it is a puzzle, 
At what point do the Northern Triangle countries have sufficient resources and happiness that it doesn't lo- make sense to go to the want to go to the United States any longer? Never. That's never going to happen. I mean, we're always going to be better. At least I hope. I mean, if the measure is how can we equalize things, you're not going to equalize those countries to the United States or five thousand other countries in the world. Uh, you see, you see what I'm saying. Well, what can we do? Uh, so that people don't want to come to the U.S. People are no, that, it, the whole thing is insane. The idea you that you're just no. pouring money down a down a hole, and you don't know where it's going. If you, I mean, uh, no matter what you spent in, in in the country, you're referring to Guatemala and what Honduras and yeah, Nicaragua yeah, yeah. or something, whatever the three are. That they, I mean, basically those people are right. You have to move people to resources, not the other way around. But the answer isn't that they have an, an, an automatic right to come to the U.S. They, no one can blame them for aspiring to come here. Well, aspiration is always going to be there because we're always going to be a great country, at, you know, unless Biden wrecks it. I think we all knew what our role was. And by the way, Biden is now suggesting we pay reparations for illegal aliens that were deported because they were here, entered here and resided illegally and they were deported. Now he wants to give them cash for that injustice. Yeah, the, the, I, I think that's wonderful news. That, that's just another nail in the coffin of the Democratic Party. If they but put I, that one up, they'll really take a hit. The paradigm real quickly was that we are prosperous. We are a free market economy and a constitutional republic. And that success radiates throughout Latin America and people want to emulate it. And then people who want to come here legally and uh, meritocratically, and we let them in, they became assimilated Americans. They had affinities from their home places. They were models of what you could do. And that's about all you can do is become a model and, and, you know, behave in a judicious manner to your neighbors. But you can't go You can't accept all these people especially when the host no longer believes in integration and assimilation and Americanism. And more importantly, it doesn't do any good if a person leaves Mexico or Guatemala and comes to the United States and wants to have this, the embryo of American entitlements, but wants to have the same ethos that caused him to leave Mexico. In other words, if he lives as a Mexican or a Honduran within the United States, and he's able to do that because of the, the greater success around him, it never works. So you have to break down that. And yet we're just told that the Biden administration outlawed the, the use of the word assimilation. But that, this that is I, the most extreme definition of globalism, where you basically take all of the people in the world and all of the wealth in the world and divide them equally amongst all the people. I mean, divide the wealth equally. I mean, the, when you get right down to it, the, the more militant globalists uh, espouse something fairly close to that. No, Anyone anywhere in the world has a perfect right to the same standard of living as anybody else. But, you know, the, this is just this is just Marxism at a different level and, it's, and, and without any authority to be imposed. That does it for today's show. Want to join the discussion? Email the show at scholarsandsensepodcast at gmail.com. Share the show with your family and friends. Subscribe, rate, and review. So for Conrad Black and Victor Davis Hanson, I'm Bill Bennett. We'll talk again soon.